Well, we left off in Deuteronomy 16, and over the past few chapters, we've been following along as Moses has been relating the law to the people. And that word relating is carefully chosen by me. Relating. Not just repeating, but relating. He takes the law and he makes practical application of it to the people so they can understand it better and walk in it more clearly. He's relating the law. I was talking to a gentleman Sunday, first time they came to visit the bridge, he and his wife. And he was talking about, they were excited and they enjoyed it, and he was talking about relevance and just saying, boy, you know, every we want to be involved with a relevant church. A church that's speaking in relevant terms, in relevant terminology, in relevant language. And I said, well... All you need is a church that teaches the Bible and you have relevance. And we're a little confused in the church today that we think we need to recraft the message to make it relevant. We don't need to do anything to make the message relevant. The Word of God is relevant past, present, future. It is always relevant. And he was talking about how relevant the sermon was. And I was thinking about what we studied. The uh, piercing the ear with the awl of the servant and how to be a doulos and things like this. How relevant is that in the marketplace today? It is irrelevant to think about or talk about becoming a slave rather than someone who is in charge. But to him it came across as relevant and I said again because it's the word of God. Well let's get into this because Moses is going to shift a little bit from the law to the administration of the law. To those in charge of bringing the law to the people and what the people need to do when they have trouble in the law. Beginning in verse 18 of chapter 16. Picking up right there, you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Now you need to understand that the Israelites, once they got into the land, even after they built their cities and they settled in the land, they didn't have town halls. They didn't have city seats of government where judges and juries met to decide their rulings. And now those places where the ruler of a town would preside over the people in the central location of the town, like many small towns in America, you typically have the downtown, you have that, that place where, where the uh, trials are held. But the traditional location of where the judgment happened and what Moses is talking about here, where you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, the traditional place of that judgment can be seen in Israel today based on an archaeological find, a place called Tel Dan. Now, I I went back and looked this up. I I visited Tel Dan back in January. We're going to visit it this coming March, those of you who who go on the Israel trip with us. Tel Dan, for you archaeology buffs, the word Tel is used a lot in archaeology. It literally means a mound. And what an archaeologist will do is he will go into a region, especially in Israel, where there is so much history, and find these mounds and begin to carefully dig. And as they dig in these mounds, they begin to find relics and artifacts and uncover entire cities, like Tel Dan. Tel Dan is interesting because it is the city that belonged to the northernmost city of Israel. It was the tribe of Dan that drove out the people who lived there and settled there. Interestingly, if you check in a map of the allotment of land, Dan was not given that northernmost city. They were actually given territory in the middle of Israel, but they wanted to get further out. They were right on the border of literally idolatry, which I'll tell you about in just a moment. But the word tell literally means a mound. The word tell is a Hebrew word. It's used in the book of Joshua chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap, or a tell, forever. 
a desolation until this day. Tel Dan is an archaeological find, a mound that's left over from that city of Dan in northern Israel. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with judges and officers in all of their towns? Well, if you look again at verse 18, where Moses says, appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, the word town there in the Hebrew is sha'ar, and sha'ar means gate, because that's where the judges sat, in the gate. They had a, a literal throne set up. Sometimes they'd have a little canopy over the throne. But there at the entrance to the city, that was the place where the judges sat. That was the place where the rulings took place. If there was a trial, it took place at the entrance, at the gate of the town. So the word in the NASB that's translated towns is literally gates. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all of your gates. Now the city gate was the place that judgment took place. It was also the place that people would gather to find out the latest news and weather and sports. They came together to find out what the buzz was, what was happening, to discuss their thoughts, their ideas. That's where rabbis often would find a place to sit and teach at the gate of each town. Now reading on it says, verse 19, about these judges, you shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial you shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Verse 20, justice and only justice you shall pursue. Actually, the words and only are added there. What Moses says is, justice, justice you shall pursue. And you may live and possess or that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And yet, I think if we could take these couple or three verses and hand them to many of our judges today, they might learn something. Justice and only justice. You shall not distort justice. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not be partial or take a bribe. Is that a problem in our justice system? There are those who would rewrite the Constitution, founded on the guiding principles of God's truth, founded on literally the Ten Commandments. We know this from the writings of our founding fathers, and yet trying to drive the Ten Commandments out of our justice system and rewrite the whole thing into a place where there is not the truth and principles of God. And if we don't have that, there will be no justice. God says, justice and only justice you shall pursue. Micah chapter 6 verse 8. The prophet says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You see, long before the Constitution was ever written in America, long before we ever said or spoke the Pledge of Allegiance, God laid a foundation of truth which declared justice for all. Justice for all is not an American idea. It is a holy idea, a godly idea. Justice imparted, judgments impartial. And it's in this context that Moses reiterates his teaching against something else. Which is why I mentioned Tel Dan to you. Look at verse 21. In the middle of this justice and only justice, he says, Oh, and you shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. You shall not set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. And you may recall back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses repeated God's command for the people that after entering the land, they were to wipe out and completely decimate not just the idols, but the places that the idols existed. The high places were to be raised to the ground 
those locations of idolatry and idol worship were to be taken out, destroyed in such a way that there was no vestige or remnant of idolatry at all in the land so the people couldn't even wander back to see what was there or to consider those areas. I think personally, and this is just absolutely personal opinion, part of the reason why God said to completely destroy those places was to drive out spirits that would reside there. Spirits of idol worship that were drawn to those places. Paul says, hey, don't you know when you're worshiping a God other than God, you're not worshiping a God at all, you're worshiping a demon. And in these places of the idols to Molech and Baal and Asherah and all the, all the rest, these places were places of demonic activity because that's what the worship would go to, demons. So God said, wipe it out, clean out the land, get rid of all these places. Leviticus 26 verse 30 he says I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap heap tell I will heap your remains on the remains of your idols for my soul shall abhor you I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your soothing aromas that word tell not only means mound it literally means a heap of ruins a heap of ruins idolatry is what ruined Dan One of the key things that you see in Tel Dan in northern Israel today is a big round high place on which children were sacrificed. A place where idol worship happened that the stones are still there, the steps go up to it, it's about six feet off the ground, a big round circle, a low flat lying area. And it sits there in the middle of Tel Dan. Wait a minute, wasn't Dan one of the twelve tribes of Israel? Absolutely. And idolatry ruined them. That was the tribe that was down in the center of Israel. In the heart of Israel was their location. A safe place protected all about by their fellow tribes. But they said, no, we don't want what God gave us. We don't want this land right here in the center. We want to go up there in the north where the river runs a little more freely and where there's more foliage and where it's greener and where the idols are. And so they backed themselves up right to the border of Israel till Dan... And in that place, they were the first of the tribes of Israel to pursue, to chase after idol worship. It's interesting. John was mentioning this on Sunday. We were talking afterwards. When you get over to the book of Revelation and you read about the 144,000 Jewish witnesses, Revelation chapter 7, you find out that of the 12 tribes of Israel listed there, Dan is not one of them. 144,000 Jewish people during the tribulation, as Revelation teaches, will be protected, will be sealed and kept safe, and will be witnesses during that seven-year period. And they come from 12 of the tribes of Israel. Dan is not one of them. They've lost their place. And I believe it's because of their idolatry. There are many other interesting things there. If you want to do a search and a study on Dan, I'd encourage you to do that. But idolatry ruined them. They were captured first. They were decimated in northern Israel in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came in and wiped them out, swarming in, literally heaping their remains on the remains of their idols. Exactly as God said would happen. Boy, I'm glad we're not into idol worship today. He said facetiously. I'm glad we don't live in a country that promotes the worship of idols. And I'm not just talking about American idol. And I'm not just talking about materialism. The idols of our cars and our houses and our stuff. 
And I'm not just talking about the self-centeredness of our nation, our idolatry of our own selves, but I'm talking actual idol worship going on in America today. And it's, it's exploding. Religions of every kind, false religions. We sat in a, in a church, and I'm not going to name the church, but how interesting was that, Les? We, we stepped outside after the first session, and I said, so what do you think of this place? We were in a wedding chapel on the property of this particular church where this uh, seminar was being held yesterday. And the wedding chapel, if you looked up on the ceiling, there were medallions, gold medallions, four of them, and they were spread out kind of in the shape of a cross, which was nice, but they were faces or heads of lions. The idea of lion of the tribe of Judah. All of the things, by the way, in this wedding chapel had Christian symbolism involved. But if you looked up along the walls, there were these huge pillars that went up literally, I don't know, 20 feet high, and on the top of each one, a carving of an angel. Big, huge, muscular angel with these big wings hanging out behind and hands down and just standing there staring out from blind eyes all along the walls. And I look at those and, and I look at the medallions and I look at all the carvings and the images and the second commandment came rolling into my head. No graven images. And I thought, you know, big deal. Okay, it's just some angels and some lion's heads. Big deal, Right? We looked around at, at paintings that were representations of, of Jesus in his life. And a, representa- a representation of, of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. And I'm like, how do these guys know what, what he looked like? <laughs> were they there? You had some snapshots that I didn't hear about? And we've talked about before the whole idea of idol worship. And avoiding images is simply because you can't effectively represent God. God said, don't do it, because you can't do it. You cannot represent me. But here's the thing about idols, and the reason why I pause on this for a moment. As we have seen with Israel past, so we see in our current culture, idolatry and moral compromise go hand in hand. The moment a culture begins to compromise morally, the more susceptible they are to idols and literally demon worship, without even knowing that's what's going on. Moral compromise, idolatry. This is why Moses here, in talking about justice and the administration of justice to the judges, stops and jumps right back into talking about idolatry because justice and idolatry are connected. You know the Apostle John does the same thing? 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, he says, We know the Son of God has come, who has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the true God and eternal life. And I've often thought if John had stopped 1 John chapter 5, right there, it was a beautiful, just kicking ending to a letter. And He is the true God and eternal life. And then John adds one more verse. And again, literally speaking, or literarily speaking, I don't think I would have added the verse because I think such good punch there. True God and eternal life. But he adds, Oh, and little children guard yourselves from idols. How out of place does that seem? It's not out of place at all. Jesus is true God and eternal life, and anything else is idolatry. Anything else is idol worship. How do we guard ourselves then from idols? Micah the prophet would say, do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. Chapter 17, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has a blemish or any defect, for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. In other words, bring God the best. And what people would do is they would, they would pick a, a, a sheep out in their flock 
And they say, this, this is the best of my flock. But then upon inspection, they discover that the sheep had some kind of illness or disease. And they would quickly bring the sheep for sacrifice. And all the people would say, oh, he gave the best of his flock. No, he gave a sheep that was going to die soon anyway. So Moses says, don't do that. You bring the best. Don't bring a sheep with a blemish or a defect. It's detestable. Why? Because God wants the best. He doesn't want the second place. He doesn't want what's left over. He doesn't want to sit in the seat of the co-pilot. He doesn't want to be in the back. Yesterday, another thing in the, in the uh, seminar that was really interesting, they talked about the difference between Hebraic thought, the thinking of Hebrews, and Greco-Roman thought, the thinking of the Greeks and the Romans, which is Western civilization. That's how we think. And he was saying one of the, one of the big differences there in the way that, they, that, that the Hebrews would think and the Greeks and Romans would think is that the Greeks and Romans think of God as other than themselves they're, they're more focused on me it's what can God do for me the Hebrew thinks what can I do for God the Hebrew is God centered the Greek Roman culture is self centered which are we in America do we even have to answer that boy God really blessed me this week well, I was praying for the Lord because I have some stuff that I need done. <laughs> and I just need Him to take care. I, I was just thinking, even realizing yesterday, how much of our Christian language is about what God does for us. As opposed to being solely and completely about Him, centered on Him, focused on Him, and what He wants, and what's good for Him, and what's good for me, has no bearing whatsoever. But we're very focused right here. Well, Moses says, look, just bring your best. Verse 2, he goes on and said, If there is found in your midst... In any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly hosts which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that, and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel... Then, verse 5, you shall bring out the man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. And that is harsh, and that is serious from a self-centered point of view, from a God-centered point of view, when it's about His holiness. That is not so harsh. But going on, it says on the evidence, he says, of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. In a society, a theocracy, which Israel was, that's God-centered, then holiness is the high standard. Holiness is the focus. And evil is not to be tolerated. In a society, a democracy a republic really that we have that is so self-centered then the most important thing is the individual but you know what's interesting here God does uh, give some parameters of justice he says I don't want the evil among you if idol worship or other things are going on I want it wiped out but here are the parameters number one he says there must be multiple witnesses in other words your neighbor can't just get mad at you and go to the judge and say he did this and you die for it 
there has to be at least two or three witnesses who saw it happen and can verify that story. That's why when Jesus was crucified, they went out and tried to find multiple witnesses. They needed more than one. And they found two or three that they could pay to lie. You know what's interesting? In Muslim Sharia law, in Muslim Sharia law, which is the law in Iran and, and other states similar, the testimony of a Muslim against a non-Muslim stands by itself. You could get into an argument with a Muslim, and we heard this also yesterday. I'm going to share a few things that, that still stick in my mind from yesterday. So hopefully Russ Lessis will drive it home for you guys. But in Muslim Sharia law, if a Muslim has a problem with a non-Muslim, or literally at the lowest possible place, a demi, which is D-H-I-M-M-I, it's a lowest class person, they can go to the judge and they can say, you can have an argument. You can be sitting there with your neighbor, argue over something, your neighbor get angry, go to the police, go to the judge and say, they slapped my daughter and you can get the death penalty for it. And no one has to support that. In God's perfect justice where he says, justice and only justice, God says, I want witnesses. There must be multiple witnesses. It's an important biblical principle when we bring anything against a brother or against a sister. Witnesses. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Jesus quotes back to Deuteronomy again as he does so often. Deuteronomy is clearly a favorite book of Jesus. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the facts may be confirmed. Paul also writes in 1 Timothy 5.19, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Even the Lord himself binds himself to the rule of witnesses. He is into witnessing. God is into authentication and substantiation and validation of the truth with multiple witnesses. But beyond the multiple witnesses, in these few verses we see the witnesses themselves were also the executioners. And we've talked about that. That will slow you down from claiming someone did something against you. If you're the first one to put your hand on them. If you're the one throwing the switch. If you're the one kicking loose the gallows. You're going to think twice about what you're claiming someone did. That would slow down the process right there. But it wasn't just the witness who was the executioner, but ultimately if there was execution, if there was a crime deserving of capital punishment, the entire community then would join in the punishment. Not as a big fun afternoon to see how long they can survive the stoning. The whole community joined in because, as we've said before, no one sins unto themselves alone. It's a lie from the pit that our sins really don't affect anybody else and we can hide them and keep them to ourselves. They affect others. They do. They affect the body of Christ. They affect our families. They affect our relationship. Much as we may think we can hide the sin in our lives, it impacts others. And God says because the community is impacted, the community joins in with the punishment. Now, moving through the rest of chapter 17 and 18, Moses is going to discuss three specific governing roles for the theocracy of God. And for the remainder of our study, you can outline these two chapters with three basic headings. The counsel of a priest, the choosing of a king, and the coming of a prophet. Let me give you those again. The counsel of a priest, the choosing of a king, 
And finally, the coming of a prophet. Priest, king, and prophet. Covered through the rest of our study. First, the counsel of a priest. Deuteronomy 17, verse 8. If any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind of lawsuit or another, between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Right here, Moses is saying, hey, if you can't figure it out at the, at the city gate, you come before the judge of the gate and you guys can't come up with a, a, a satisfactory answer, you go to Jerusalem, the place where the Lord chooses. And you bring it there, and verse 9 tells us, You shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who is in office in those days. And you shall inquire of them, and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. Why are all these unresolved disputes and legal issues brought before the priests? The reason is very simple, because in God's economy of Israel there was no separation of church and state. They were the same. There's no division there. Church was state. State was church. It was a theocracy. It was God-focused. And there was no dividing, and this is important, no dividing the spiritual from the secular. Do you realize what's happened in our country with the whole separation of church and state thing is? We have in our churches developed a separation between secular and spiritual living. We think of our jobs outside of church as secular. But then we go to church for the spiritual. We think of our social lives as secular, or the movies we watch as secular, or our behavior out away from church people, well that's secular. When I'm with church people, then of course I've got to be spiritual. And we have somehow drawn a dividing line that the Bible tells us doesn't exist, at least not in someone who's been born again. This idea of secular and spiritual as separate items. Well, it wasn't that way in Israel. God says you take it to a priest because the best way to handle any dispute is God's way is the spiritual way, is the holy way. Please don't start calling me with every dispute. <laughs> Flip over your Bibles real quick, just for a moment, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And don't call me a priest either, that would be a misnomer. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1. Let me read you something with New Testament application, New Covenant application. That means it applies to you and I, and it's pretty important to understand. My mom would kick me for saying that. It applies to you and me, not you and I. She would always say, Rick, it, it applies to you and me. And I'd say, oh, it applies to you too? That's great. Okay. Verse Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Does any, of, any one of you, Paul writes, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Well, Paul is shocked here. You'd actually choose a non-Christian judge? A non-Christian jury? He goes on, verse 2, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? There's something to ponder. I'm not even going to explain that one. How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this, Paul says, to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? A brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. 
Actually, then, he says, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. And then Paul gives us a standard that I think is a standard we need to live by. And I'm talking about in our personal relationships as Christians in the church, in our families. Here's the standard, and it's a little mind-boggling. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather, he says, be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren. Paul says if there's a choice between being right and being wrong in a lawsuit, be wrong. If there's a choice between having yourself proven right or being called a fraud, take the place of fraud. What's the principle here? Very simple. Take the downside. You want to know the fastest way to solve any relational dispute is taking the downside. Even if you're not at fault. Wait, wait a minute. But if I'm right in a situation, the person needs to know that I'm right and acknowledge my righteousness. <laughs> and we can be wrong in a million other areas, but in that one, boy, I want my credit where my credit's due. And yet, I have discovered this in my own marriage. When I stand for my right to be right, I lose. Cheryl's not here even to defend against that. But when I take the downside, when I go, you know what? Okay, I was wrong. Even if I know I'm right. Now, I'm using this as an example. It's not very realistic because I don't often do this. But to take the downside in an argument is the most Jesus-like thing you can do. Because Jesus took the ultimate downside. He was not wrong, he was not unrighteous, and yet he was defrauded. And yet he was wronged. And yet he hung on a cross. And to everybody walking by who knew nothing of the situation, just wandering by on the road, heading out of Jerusalem, looking up and seeing that cross on that hill, they would have seen three men, not one cross elevated above the other two, as our Christian art would show us. They would see three men and go, criminal, criminal, criminal. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Sinner, sinner, sinner. And you know what? They'd be right. Because the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the older I get, I'm getting this piece by piece, little bit at a time, the more I recognize that when I stand up for my righteousness, I lose. But when I'm willing to take the downside and, and say... I was wrong. I apologize. I'm sorry. Even when I did nothing wrong, it makes me like Jesus. And that's a principle, gang. We could take that all the way home. Moses and Paul both agree that problems should be handled among brothers. Problems among brothers should be handled among brothers. And before the Lord, it's the best way to handle things. And ultimately, if you want to avoid going to court or lawsuits or problems with family at all, just say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Well, yeah, but Rick, a lot of stuff will go with that. They're going to bring it up again. Remember that time you were wrong? And you're going to have to say, yeah. Knowing you were right, <laughs> it totally flies in the face of our secular selfishness. But it's a very God-centered thing to do. Because ultimately only one person has ever been completely and wholly right, and that's Jesus. And yet he was wronged. Verse 10, Deuteronomy 17 going on. You shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. 
Verse 11, according to the terms of the law which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. And you shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you, to the right or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Are we really looking for godly counsel or or are we looking for what our ears want to hear? Moses is saying, if you go from your town all the way to Jerusalem with your dispute and the judge says, you're wrong, that's it. Whether you still think you're right or not, if the judge says you're wrong, you're wrong, take it. But we act presumptuously because we don't want to hear that. I came all the way down here just to be proven wrong. Well, I don't accept that. I'm going to re-sue. And I'm going to sue again until finally I get the verdict that I want for myself. And personally, I think this is the number one reason why people travel from church to church. I think we go until we hear what we want to hear. And then when we begin to hear something we didn't want to hear or we don't like, we're going to go somewhere else where we can hear what we want to hear. Until we don't hear there what we wanted to hear. We'll go find somewhere else where we hear what we want to hear. Now listen, I'm not talking about leaving a church because the word isn't being taught. I'm not talking about going somewhere because God is leading you to be there. What I'm talking about is when we hear the direct counsel of the word of God and we are personally offended and we say, I don't want to hear that anymore. I've had enough of that. I'm not going to go back there. This is serious, gang, because when we go for godly counsel and we hear it, but we, we refuse to receive it and act upon it, the same thing happens to us that Moses will declare happens right here. We die. So if you go get that counsel and you reject it, you die. So you better think twice about going for that counsel. I don't think I'd even go from the judge's seat on down to Jerusalem just in case I might be wrong and not want to hear it. If we are told the truth and we don't want to hear it, we die. Our marriages die. Our relationships die. My credibility, my integrity, it dies. But worst of all, when I go and I hear what I don't want to hear from the mouth of the Lord Himself and I reject it, my spirit dies. Well, maybe not completely, but a little bit. And a little more. And my heart begins to harden which is what happens to a heart that's dying when I don't do what God tells me to do. But listen, God doesn't want this. The whole reason why this is written down in law, and some of you may be reading this going, it's still kind of harsh. This is Old Testament God stuff. (laughs) The harsh, if you don't do it, you die. Why is it written down? As a deterrent because God didn't want them to die. What does God want for Israel? To live. I want you to live, he says. That's God's heart. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Moses says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. That's what God wants for you. Choose life. You know, it wasn't just the 80s group Wham! who had the big idea, choose life. I'm probably the only person who knows what I'm talking about here, but there was a video of Wham! You remember that one? Yeah, wake me up before you go-go. And they had on those sweatshirts that said, Choose life. And they were so politically correct and it was really cool. It wasn't their idea. Moses said this 3,000, 3,500 years earlier. Choose life. Why would Moses say that? Because that's what God wants for his people, not death. He wasn't looking for the death of any of his people, but life. And by the way, today, the council of the priests 
is but a prayer away. A prayer away. The Hebrew writer calls Jesus the high priest of our calling and he says in Hebrews 4.15 we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need our high priest Jesus. We don't have to travel down to Jerusalem to get the ruling, to get discernment, to get wisdom. We just close our eyes Open our mouths and say, Lord Jesus, I need a ruling here. (laughs) I need a judgment, Lord. I need a direction. I need your wisdom. Our judgment is a prayer away. Our high priest is right there. Well, the council of the priest was the first area, second area, the choosing of a king. This is fascinating. Watch this. The choosing of a king. Verse 14. God says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of who is not your countrymen. Now, this, this cracks me up. This shows us how well God knows his people. Because Israel was set up as a theocracy with God as king. But God already knew that once the people got into the land, they were going to whine and complain and say, We want a king like the rest of the nations. We want a king like they've got. We want a king with flesh. We want a king we can see. God knew they were going to do that. So what does he do? He gives them the regulations for it ahead of time. Which I think is pretty funny. God says, I know you're going to go against me. You're going to rebel. You're going to want a a human king. When that happens, let me tell you how to do it. Let me prescribe the right thing for you. And he says, number one, he gives several things about the choosing of a king here. He says, they should be from among your countrymen. Now listen, again, it was not God's original intent for the people to have a human king. That's what they cried out for. It's not what he wanted for them. Not a democracy or a monarchy, but a theocracy, a kingdom in which the Lord himself would be king. And so, he knew the people would cry out for the king, and if you'll flip to 1 Samuel chapter 8, over to the right just a bit there, 1 Samuel chapter 8, you will see and read a heartbreaking scenario. 1 Samuel 8. Beginning in verse 4. It tells us that all the elders of Israel gathered together. And they came to Samuel, who was the prophet of Israel at the time. They came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Nice. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. Remember, God called them out of the nations to be a light to the nations, to be different than the nations. We want a king like the nations. <laughs> Why? Verse 6 tells us the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Listen to the Lord's response. Verse 7, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me. When I feel rejection in my life, and I felt it, 
we all have at some point or another been rejected by someone all I have to do is draw back for a moment and wonder what must it be like to be God and to be rejected time after time after time rejected by his people Israel who he had saved who he had brought out rejected by people who constantly day in and day out say I want nothing to do with you God I would rather live in my rebellion rejected by Christians they say I just don't have time for you this week I'll, I'll, I'll get around to it they have not rejected you they have rejected me from being king over them Jesus said the same thing to his disciples if the world hates you Remember it hated me first. Jesus understands. He knows rejection. And so God goes on and says, Like all the deeds which they have done since the day which I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. And ultimately, the first king appointed was a man named Saul. Saul was a charismatic man of great stature. We're told that he stood above every person in Israel, so he was a tall guy. But God, listen, Saul wasn't God's response to their desire to be like other nations. Saul was the repercussion of their desire. God didn't choose Saul as the best choice for their first king. God chose Saul to teach them a lesson. You want a king like the nations? I'm going to give you one. Look down in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. It tells us that uh, there was a man who had a son whose name was Saul. A choice and handsome man. You can call him the people's choice. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel from his shoulders and up. He was taller than any of the people. So God appoints Saul. But Saul is not God's response to their desire. He is the repercussion of their desire. And it tells us again that he stood from his shoulders and up taller than any of the people. Which just tells me he had a big head. Verse 16, further down says, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. And you might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. God chose Saul. He says, I'm going to send the man from the land of Benjamin. I'm choosing him. No, Saul, Saul was the people's choice. And God just gave them their request. But as the psalmist writes later, He gave them their request but sent leanness into their soul. God often functions this way with His people. Giving the request, which is not the best thing, but giving the request and along with it, leanness. A season of dryness. A thirst. So that once we get that request, ultimately we begin to realize, boy, (laughs) I wanted that real bad. But that's not what God wanted for me. God is much more focused on our eternity than He is on our present comfort. So He gave them their request. He sent leanness into their soul. Be careful what you wish for. God may give it to you. But listen to this. Saul was not the right king. And as a matter of fact, of all the kings of Israel, Saul is the only one who stood outside of God's favor. What do you mean? Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 tells us something all the way back. Israel, Jacob, 
blessing his sons and he says the following he says the scepter shall not depart from Judah the scepter being the rule shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him the obedience of the peoples what tribe was Saul from? we're told in verse 16 Benjamin he wasn't from Judah the line of the kings prophetically spoken by Jacob prophetically in other words spoken by the Holy Spirit through Jacob the line of the kings was to be Judah and David the second king of Israel David was God's choice David was a man after God's own heart not perfect by any means but he loved the Lord and he had a soft heart and he followed the Lord and he was God's choice but Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin and was not of the true line of the kings their first king not of the true line of the kings there was David there was Solomon later Josiah and of course down through the line of the tribe of Judah is the great king Jesus Christ that's the lineage